fellow fiends. Welcome to another terrifying and delectable episode of Nightmare on Film Street. The horror podcast with zero credibility, but all of the blood, ghouls, and gore. Your puny heart can handle. <laughs> Let's give a grave welcome to our hosts, John and Kim. Hello again, fiends, and welcome to Nightmare on Film Street. I'm Kim. I'm John. And this week, we are talking ghosts from the past. Ghosts of the past. Shit. <laughs> ghosts of the past. That's right. We're talking uh, grieving fathers and well, and a, and a grieving mother. And loss, just yeah, loss, just in loss in general. Yeah, loss, ghosts, maybe ghosts, strange tension, seances, and psychics. There's a lot going on in both of these movies. Yeah, There's some, we even find time to have a nice little relaxing quartet and a piano. George C. Scott does not know how to play the piano, right? He does the bob, though. He bobs <laughs> he and weaves. Yeah, like, okay, this is what you need to do, George. You just need to move your hands up and down. Feel the music with your shoulders and neck. This guy sounds like he's <laughs> never listened to classical music ever. Bum, 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 bum. People can't see you doing that. No, okay. Yeah, the, <laughs> what I'm doing is I'm conducting like someone who's never conducted. Also, because I've never conducted. I would have been perfect for this role. But yes, that's right. We are talking about Peter Medic's The Changeling and Nicholas Rogue's Don't Look Now. Yeah, two super spooky films that, one, we visited for the first time, uh, was a first time watch for us, and then the second one was a revisit of a film that we didn't give a lot of credit to the first watch, so we got to find some new appreciation, and then we kind of, like, thought about the ending a little bit. <laughs> but we'll get into it, we'll get into it. Uh, before we do, though, Jonathan, what is keeping you creepy this week? I am so excited to talk about this. Uh, over the last weekend, we uh, watched a movie for the first time that I did not expect to love as much as I did. This is like a new five-star, on Letterboxd, uh, in terms of this podcast, four-star rating, four out of four, 100%, hit it out of the park, talking about Brian De Palma's rock opera, The Phantom of the Paradise. Yes, shout out to uh, Colin, who wrote the retrospective on this movie a few months back for his Video Vault column. I love how you edited an article on this this movie I've been wanting like, oh, okay. no I've been wanting to watch it since then because I when I, I I didn't really get as much from it until I started uploading the photos and I was like oh my god this really is that insane I watched the Brian De Palma documentary and I was like oh, I should see this it looks interesting I just I didn't think it was going to be as much my bag as it definitely is yes so fun the music and it's amazing oh my god I can't we haven't stopped listening to the soundtrack since we finished we, we rented the movie on Friday and the whole weekend has been... Non-stop. Non-stop paradise. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's it's like discovering an Alice Cooper album you didn't know existed. It reminds me of the time that we watched Repo the Genetic Opera for the first time, and it just became <laughs> this two-year obsession with the songs. 
Oh, I'm I also like we've listened to the songs enough now that I'm just like I'm hearing things that I didn't necessarily notice before and how like everything I hope the you guys songs are relate with this. to the other parts. Of the- <laughs> yeah, it's just like the like Winslow's Faust that he sings at the beginning on the piano is like every you're other song. So, I know. I hope so you guys have seen this movie. And into it. <laughs> it's oh, it's so good, it's so good. Uh, it's definitely a wild movie if you haven't seen it. It's very Rocky Horror Picture Show. If you love that movie, you're definitely gonna love Phantom of the Paradise. I can't believe it's we absurd. Went this long. It's it nuts. It's so weird. It's got Jessica episode. Harper. If, uh, if if you haven't seen it, Jessica Harper from Suspiria. Uh, it's also got singing Motown. Yeah, um, <laughs> she does it. She does a good job. But um, I've lost the actor's name and I feel horrible for it. But Beef, watch that movie for Beef. Oh, he's the best. Also, too, I don't know if you saw, over the weekend, we dropped our brand new t-shirts. They are so amazing. They're very cool. Uh, Horror movie marathon tees. It's got characters, uh, John and myself, and there's a Matilda in there. There's a little little pug on the couch, yeah. (laughs) It's a full scene. If you look real close, you can see a teeny little curly tail. (laughs) And there's tons of horror movie characters that we will not name. (laughs) Um, The art was done by Robin Banks. Robin, thank you so much for designing the t-shirt. It is amazing. It's so cool. We are currently offering it on unisex t-shirts in the full color design. It's also in black and white. And we have it on pullover sweatshirts for those of you like us who are still in crazy ass cold weather. Uh, But you can get those at store.nofspodcast.com. And they are now for sale. And they are so cool. I love that damn shirt. Also, too, if you want to check out, uh, we modeled the shirts a little bit when we got them. We tried our best to recreate the actual pose on the shirt. So there's a really funny photo right now on our Instagram page uh, at Nightmare on Film Street if you want to check that out. We should have gotten some friends over to like, play all the roles of the different characters oh my God, we could have had a ghost face like looming over you it was hard enough just getting you me and the dog in the right fucking spot well i think if we were going to get that many people i would have had somebody else take the photo <laughs> yeah it was like you me a selfie stick and then a dog that just wanted to go back to sleep yeah she's like please god just let me go back to bed which brings me of course to some super cool folks that i want to give a big shout out to Corey, A.K. Kristen, that sounds like an A.K.A. Corey, space, A.K. space, Kristen, Mark, Josh, Taylor, Jacqueline, Sarah, Brad, Ariel, and Joe, the ghosts with the most, the uh, coolest ghouls in school, super awesome specters, I got more, I'm sure I got more, give me some other names for ghosts, what do we got? Uh, Fabulous phantoms. I was gonna say phantom, but we did just talk about phantom the paradise. And really awesome wraiths. Wraiths are one, right? Mm. Isn't that... Okay, maybe it's a bit of a stretch, but I'm almost positive we, in Hamlet, we call the ghost a wraith. I'm sticking with it. It's fine. Cut, print, check the gate. Thank you guys so much for your support. Those are the names of all of our new patrons who have joined us on patreon.com slash Nightmare on Film Street, and they got themselves a shout out here on the show. Uh, there are also tons of other perks and rewards, bonus episodes. There will be a mini-sode in companion with this week's episode that we will be recording right after this. And there's merch and swag and all kinds of fun stuff over there. That's right. You want to get a cool little discount on a new Nightmare on Film Street tee? Head over to patreon.com slash Nightmare on Film Street. And thank you again uh, for your support. This show, of course, would be a nightmare without you. But that's enough business. Let's get into the movies. Let's talk about Nicholas Rogue's Don't Look Now. What is it, Mr. Baxter? What is it you fear? Find him. He's 
You must find him. You must I warned him back. It was a warning. It was Christine. She was trying to warn us. Your life is in danger while you're in Venice. <laughs> what is it you fear? Christine is dead. She is dead. <laughs> Suddenly. Oh. No. No. John, I wish you'd believe me. <laughs> what did she say? What did she say? Oh. She is dead. You must find her. Dead, 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 dead. You are warned. Things are not what they seem. Don't look. Don't Look Now from 1973, directed by Nicholas Rogue, is currently sitting at a 7.3 out of 10 on IMDb, 96% on Rotten Tomatoes, 4 out of 4 from Roger Ebert, and 3.8 out of 5 on Letterboxd. It's pretty high. Very high. Critical reception uh, when the movie first came out, almost, slightly mixed. Oh yeah? Yeah, it, it's a polarizing film, I'd say. A lot of high praise, a lot of like, eh, it was okay. Yeah, uh, I was like that initially when we came out of the when we came out of the seeing the movie in our room, the home theater. <laughs> yes, when I when I left the theater and put my pajama pants on. <laughs> yeah, I I have to say this movie is not enjoyable <laughs> to watch. It's not hot like, take, but I think I really like it. Yeah. And it, that's a weird experience. I It's one of those movies that's um, a lot more interesting to mull over and think about. I am so like with you on that one. A sharp wine or cheese or something where you're like, <laughs> ew, gross. And then you're like, I'm going to have more of that sharp cheese. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm going to go back and see what's going on in that yeah. jar of olives. <laughs> I like more of that. That was disgusting. <laughs> <laughs> what is a, what is that? Like, we... we, we... Try and say, like, as adults, we have more refined palates. It's like, do we just start liking gross stuff? <laughs> it still tastes just as gross. Yeah, because I'm sure you tried a sip of beer or something. Like, the first time anybody has alcohol, yeah, it's like, horrible. Mm, refreshingly salty. Yeah. Like, what? Yeah, what is that? Even coffee. Like, I used to have lots of sugar and lots of cream in my coffee and now if it's not black you get that fucking coffee away from me i need it bitter i drink beer that tastes like a milkshake of socks yeah but you like to destroy your mouth though you have a weird thing about sour and spicy that i don't understand like you just like butcher (laughs) (laughs) i just need to feel something (laughs) like if my lips aren't burnt by the end of this then there was no need Um, so this film is much like a sharp cheese or a stinky pasta. I gotta say, uh, does this movie completely change your definition of slow burn? Like, have we just, one, have I never seen a slow, like a real slow burn movie before this? Or am I just always using that term wrong? Because we use it when we talk about stuff like The Kill List or Hereditary, but those movies have like exciting moments. This is. I think this film is an odd exception. Like, I think this is just a weird fucking anomaly, this film. I don't know. Like, Picnic at Hanging Rock is. Well, that's not really as slow a burn. I just want to. Before we get really into it, into it, this is 100% going to be a spoiler discussion. I, yeah, totally. I don't think we normally say that, but if, if you haven't seen Don't Look Now uh, and you're hoping to see it soon, I would avoid this part 
Because I don't think there's any way to talk about this movie without talking about everything that happens. Mm -hmm. Well, neither of us had seen the film before, so we're still kind of digesting the film as a whole. Mm. I don't think we're at the point where we can, like, pick apart all the meanings of the little moments and stuff. Like, I don't know if we're there yet. I think we're going to fucking try, but I think (laughs) we're going to suck in it. (laughs) Yeah, the, the whole movie is in service of the ending, right? Like, the whole thing is, is all I, for the last 30 seconds. But I don't know, though. I, okay. So I thought that initially it was just like, oh, there's all these things that point to the ending. But I think that's not the point of the movie at all. I think the point of the movie is the feeling you get through the duration, and that's dread. This unknowing dread and this feeling that the film is building to something, but it's not really building to anything, but it sort of is, is the whole point of the film. And there's a lot of red herrings. There's a lot of weird eeriness. There's a lot of um, suspicion on everybody involved in the film, like every character you're suspicious of. And you don't really know outright why. And I think that's the point of the movie. I think the point (laughs) of the movie is just to be tense and uncomfortable for the duration of it. I'm 100% with you. And this is my kind of filmmaking. Like, holy shit, do I love that. Like, I love just being steeped in dread and not knowing why. There is just dread at the core of it and existential problems. And you don't really know why. Um, but you're just there in the thick of it, experiencing the story. And I don't, it's, this movie is so strange because I don't know why it really elicits that feeling. Yeah, like there's nothing outright dreadful about yeah. it. Is it just that we are expecting something to happen? Because it's like we've seen a bunch of movies and like, oh, well, this looks like it's leading here. We're expecting something to happen in this moment. And like, it really looks like she had a strong reaction to that. But I don't know why. And I guess I guess we'll just wait and see what happens. Yeah. This is the strangest <sighs> ride I've ever been on. A lot, of, I, I think, of it comes down to... So at the very beginning of the film, this couple, they have a slightly older son. I think he's like nine. And then a young daughter who's around four. She's four in this? She's very young. I guess that's true. She drowns in the pond in the backyard. And the dad kind of, he has no inkling as to what urges him to to go. But he runs outside. He tries to resuscitate her. um, And he's unable to. Hmm. And there's a lot of really cool imagery that kind of plays later into the film. Well, I think we'll get to it when we get to it. Yeah. So you you kickstart this movie knowing that you have these grieving parents. But rather than having this movie about a sudden grief, which mm-hmm. is what this family definitely went through, we instead join them months later when they're kind of moving on from it. I think they're running from it. I think uh, that's why they're in another country altogether. Yeah, they might be running from it. So the father, John, he restores churches, um, or he's like an architect. He's, he specializes in restorations. They are in Venice, like the actual Venice, with all the stilts and the water and the <laughs> gondolas and the whatever you call it. Yep, yep, yep. <laughs> uh, and the architecture, and sh- uh, his wife, Laura, is there with him. They have left their son at a boarding school, I would assume. Um, and so they're there and the entire movie takes place in Venice and it is some time after the death of their daughter. So there isn't a lot of outright grief. Like mm. Laura isn't in pieces. Um, he's working. She's smiling and laughing on occasion. They're having lunch. Life has moved on. Yeah. But, they have moved on. But they are constantly reminded of it. Yeah. No, they're like, it's this, it's the kind of grief that you have uh, a year or two years after an event where... You've come to terms with the day-to-day grief, but you're you're getting accustomed to uh, 
the long-term effects of grieving and loss. Yeah, and it's what it's doing to their relationship and the two of them. And but not it, a lot of films, and especially horror films, tackle long-term loss. Yeah, it's yeah. always immediate grief. Yeah. Especially ones that start with the death of the child. Yeah, this is a, this is a horror movie for a adults and we don't get that much anymore like her I, her I keep i'm gonna keep pointing to hereditary but i think really what sparked the inspiration for this episode is hereditary and everybody uh saying that don't look now is a perfect pairing with hereditary it took us this long to get to it unfortunately um but i, I can definitely see why whereas hereditary like you're saying deals with that immediate grief afterward this is that how does that relationship sustain and how do those people maintain uh, their lives after after losing a, a child, right? And um, it is such a strange look at it because they're not really out of the woods, not that they probably ever will be, right? But they, they have these moments where they are mad and fighting at each other, maybe for no reason other than the fact that they're just, that they, something reminded them of their daughter and they don't know how to react to it. Or they're perfect. They're having a perfectly normal day, and they're happy, and then something happens, and they're both just like in the dumps again. Um, well, it's how two people who are united with this loss deal with things individually, and how that affects the other. Mm -hmm. Particularly, the inciting incident of this film is the couple are out for lunch, and the wife ends up meeting a pair of sisters, one who is blind. And has a second sight. She is psychic, and she can. She claims she can see her daughter, and uh, the daughter's passing on messages through her. Laura, the wife, is instantly drawn to the the woman, and she believes her. Mm -hmm. And um, when she brings that to her husband, he is not so quick to believe. No, not at all. This guy doesn't believe in anything. I think there's even a moment in the movie where he he says that he doesn't believe in physics. Like, he, does, he doesn't believe in any of it. He doesn't believe in God. He doesn't believe in ghosts. He doesn't believe in reincarnation. He is a man of science, and he's just he deals with what he can see and what he can touch. Um, Which is funny about a man who restores buildings of worship. I, I, I don't, well, here's the thing, though. I mean, like, all money flowed through the church back in the day. So, like, there's a period where all paintings, all buildings, all everything is, is, is no, church. No, I, I don't think he... It, but I see what you're saying. Specifically, but it's interesting that in this film, this period in his life, he is restoring a church. Yeah. I don't know where to go. I, I, I really don't know what to talk about in this movie because there are things that I, I, I've been mulling over since we watched it. And then while I was just, like, looking up... Um, production details and behind the scenes stuff um i came across some other aspects of analysis and themes in the movie that i just didn't even notice whatsoever but a big part of that definitely deals with the two sisters uh, the clairvoyant one um and the the other one with a bad leg they, they they are running into them several times and they convince laura to come to a seance where she talks to her daughter and Laura, mom, at this point, becomes very comforted by the fact that her daughter's still around. Like, she is in a much better mood. She feels better than she has in a year. And her husband doesn't accept it. And he doesn't believe any of it whatsoever. And it's almost like his life gets worse because him and his wife aren't on the same page anymore. 
And mm. his his wife is, he thinks, going through this delusional state because she can't, she's no longer processing her grief and she's chasing after this fantasy. And it kind of puts his mental state in a different direction. Mm. You know what I mean? That's a really good point. Did you immediately think they were, they were con artists or something? Because it seemed like they kept trying to not necessarily place themselves in this couple's life, but they do keep showing up. I think the lens this film looks at the, the sisters is supposed to make us very suspicious of them. Yeah. Especially when Laura goes to their house at first, they give her a drink and the lens focuses on close up of the drink. And maybe that's just by today's eyes at any time you see anything, there's something important about that thing. Like we always say, whenever you are in a car with a character and you are looking so you can see through the driver's side or the passenger side window, you know that the car is going to be T-boned. Oh yeah. That is just how we've been trained to look at film and how things are filmed like we we know what to anticipate and this film really plays on that there's the whole scene where laura is asking about the children in the photos on the nightstand and Mm. we take the time to go through them and so you're thinking like what happened to those kids why are all their kids dead why are they with this woman whose kid is dead and like are they trying to capture souls like what are these (laughs) what are these women up to well it doesn't help that the woman's blind and her eyes are a little grayed out right (laughs) hey i mean that woman she did not need to she does not need your ridicule (laughs) there were a lot of really cool shots on her face though yeah uh the moment that particularly stands out to me as one of the creepiest eeriest moments is when the three of them sit down at the table the one sister asks laura if her legs are crossed and the camera goes under the table and laura says yes and so she uncrosses her legs but the instant she uncrosses her legs one of the sisters crosses her legs so it's like there's always needs to be somebody with their legs crossed you're like what the fuck does that mean right like either they are witches and they are implanting themselves in their lives to use their grief to fuel some sort of fucking spell where they're gonna sacrifice one of the two of them to resurrect a demon that we think is her daughter but it's not or con artists like that's the whole time yeah some what something yeah you are constantly constantly suspicious and it's 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 a hundred percent intentional because there is a moment later on in the movie when their son is injured at school and Laura is, is I'm getting on the first plane. I'm going back home. I got to make sure that my son's okay. Like, it sounds like he's just bumped his head, but maybe the the headmaster and the does nurse. Does not want to get sued. <laughs> yeah, definitely does not want to get sued. So uh, traveling from Italy back to back to London is going to be no big deal. So she she hops off the next day and goes. But while she's gone... Uh, Donald Sutherland sees his wife and those two women on a gondola in the canal and he's unsure whether or not she's actually left the country or not. Like he thinks that they are there planning something or they're conning him, that they're using his wife for nefarious purposes or maybe because his wife's been so grief-stricken she is this mysterious murderer that's roaming the streets of venice like he he has no idea he just knows something's up and i think all of what we suspect of those two sisters is supposed to lead us to that moment like we we need to buy into donald sutherland's suspicions at that moment otherwise the whole thing falls apart but he's the character we believe he is the only person throughout the film that is of sound mind and sound beliefs So we're supposed to believe him when he's suspicious. We're supposed to trust his eyes when he sees his wife on that gondola. Mm. 
But there's so many other eerie things that don't add up into the main plot of the story. Like there's the scene where he's talking to the priest and they are out um, by the water and they're pulling the body of a girl mm -hmm. out of the canal onto a boat. And we linger there and we watch that. And so much so that I was like, is that his wife? Did they, did his <laughs> wife not make it? Like, is his wife dead on the boat? And that's why you saw her because that was her ghost leaving with those creepy women who aren't alive. You just, right. you're just your mind ghosts. just swirls onto what this could be. But that is really just a woman in the canal, like, a, like some random woman who's fallen victim to this serial killer who's out and about in venice yeah I, I i think they linger on it a lot because he's being reminded of his daughter like there's a lot of cuts constantly to his pov of seeing his daughter submerged in the pond like her her drowned face the moments before he pulls her out that's really haunting throughout the rest of the movie and i think that's why we end up lingering on those shots like there's even that moment i think it's it might even be right then right where he pulls the doll out of the water Hmm. Yeah, I think he's just so affected by it. But the 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 choices and the visuals and stuff uh, are all calling back to that moment, like the gla stained glass with the glass of the kid riding over with his bike, and the the fact that his daughter drowned and they're living in a in a place right now that's completely surrounded by water. Yeah, and this killer keeps dumping bodies into the water. So uh, the idea of water and death are really tied together throughout this whole movie. Um, which could be important who fucking knows i think it is important <laughs> here's something i didn't necessarily think of uh there <laughs> to come back to something you were just saying like and this is not something i noticed this is just something i picked up from the internet so it could be 100 percent be wrong but i mean this movie's been analyzed for 40 years so surely to god there's some nugget of truth to it and it sounds like you were ahead of the curve on this one so congrats uh, there's some big deal around breaking glass or just glass in general some hallmark moments would be uh, when his wife falls over in the restaurant. It's one of the things they were pointing at. I think that's a little weak, but like she knocks over an entire tray and we really linger on all the cups and the cutlery and, and all the glass that breaks and the water that spills out because of it. Uh, when John almost falls off a piece of scaffolding, there's a there's a block of wood that breaks a pane of glass. He kicks a pane of glass at the end of the movie. When he has like the, oh my God, I think there's something wrong with my daughter. He spills a cup of water on his table which ruins a Polaroid that I want to get back to. Uh, and at the end of the movie, when he goes to see the two sisters and they offer him a glass of whiskey like they did his wife, he says, no, that's okay, thank you. Can I please just have a glass of water? As though like the glass of water is constantly tied to uh, a death that's about to happen. Hmm. Which is nuts. I thought it was just a bunch of imagery. Like most of the scenes are supposed to be this like seamless transition, which... Maybe by modern eyes, you don't see as much, but we fade a lot from like ponds to a rainy day okay. or from a window to a different window. Or from that scream to a train whistle. Mm hmm. So the film has a lot of transitions to straight out imagery and a lot of them are water or glass. Mm. And I think that's part of the part of the film's like method of disorienting you in a way I th oh i think you are supposed to feel disoriented watching this movie yeah i think it's supposed to feel like you're wading through a dream like a, a river of dreams or nightmares yeah like you're you're solving a mystery but you are only allowed to go at two miles per hour yeah which is how I feel in nightmares, right? Don't you? Don't you? Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> You've talked enough about it. Yeah, but it's also like uh, like one of the first images we see in the movie is a stained glass window. 
uh, and there's a lot of breaking glass. And there was a moment early on in the movie where I figured this was probably going to be a theme where uh, his wife, Laura, is in the bathroom because she's she's just been told that her the ghost of her daughter is alive and around them. And she's just kind of having a moment to to sit and take that in i was too busy looking at all the plants in that hotel like what hotel is just filled with plants most hotels i guess venice doesn't have any natural greenery that makes sense carry on okay i'm glad you figured that one out (laughs) solve the mystery (laughs) so she's sitting in the bathroom and there's a there's a few sections of mirror and one of them's uh turned and uh we sort of have like this fragmented look inside the bathroom and she's cut between two uh two panes on the on the mirror it looks so fucking good and 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 i think it also speaks to these another theme of like mistaken identity throughout the movie right because we've got the the whole time there is this eerie little character wearing a very similar red coat to his drowned daughter that he keeps chasing throughout all of the winding confusing streets of venice but didn't you think the entirety of the movie up until the finale that that was just a figment of his imagination uh, yeah, I did. And I think it's it's interesting that it's not, especially given that we find out a lot of what he sees is figments, are figments of his imagination. But not really. Everything at this film is supposed to be taken at face value, and we take nothing at face value. I, I, I think we're the supposed sisters... to have a hard time figuring out what we're supposed to take at face value and what is actually figurative. But what's crazy is it's all literal. <laughs> <laughs> literal. Like, everything is how it presents it to be. The sisters are to be trusted. Everything. That is the that is the craziest moment of this movie when you realize that they are super nice ladies. They're just and, nice ladies, and there is nothing to be scared of. Like he goes back to see them at one point because he's like, "What the fuck are You're they like, doing?" They're gonna my murder life? him, and they're gone. They have just cleared out of the hotel room. There's no sign of them. They didn't leave a forwarding address. They have just left. But he's still seeing them around with his wife. So what the fuck is going on? But the best part is, is the reason why they left is because they they heard there was a prowler outside their hotel room, and it was him. Yeah, he was the he, prowler instead of going to the seance with his wife, he's like, you know what? Fuck those old ladies. I'm going I'm gonna, to the all day breakfast. Yeah, I'm going to go to the all day breakfast and get all night drunk and then wanders into the hallway. But he doesn't want to go in because he doesn't want to admit that maybe he like is buying into this a little. So he's just listening in on their door when a neighbor hears him and like they Being all chase him out. <laughs> right? He's the creeper beeper. Well, also there's women getting murdered. So like, yeah, good on I the think, neighbors to chase right? him away. Best neighbors in the world. <laughs> but I got to tell you, Face value, figurative, literal, whatever you want to look at it. He, the, the, the oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Let me just gather my thoughts for a little bit. So at one point, the sister Heather, I think, I'm not sure, one of the two sisters, the, the blind woman with the second sight, says that her husband, John, has that same ability. She can see it in him. Says that. That Donald Sutherland's character also has second sight. Something that we learn throughout the movie, at the end of the movie, is true. And when you go back, this entire movie is is kicked into motion because he sees a premonition of his own death. All of the events of this movie take place because of that. It's almost as though his premonition of his death kicks into gear his daughter dying, them going to Venice, his wife going back away, giving him the ability to roam the streets alone and run into his eventual murderer. Because in the beginning, he's looking at a Polaroid of a church in Venice. He spills water onto it, 
and it ruins the Polaroid, and we see a big streak of red, which then flashes to a full screen of red. I think that's supposed to be, like, him seeing his own death. We don't see it, but he does. He just maybe has a feeling of it, and he interprets that as, I think there's something wrong with my daughter. Either that or he also sees his daughter's death at the same moment because while he's dying... I don't think it's necessarily a full picture like that. I think he just experiences dread. Yeah. Because I think uh, yeah, I think he just has this feeling of dread, this, this primal feeling of dread, and he needs to go check on the children. Because if you're an adult and you yeah. have, that, you have ch- young children who are playing outside unsupervised... Near and you water. Get, you get a fucking feeling, like, yeah. you're going to go check on them. He doesn't even say anything to his wife, he just gets up and goes. And, like, he knows. Like, before he's even out of the room, he knows there's something wrong. But while he's dying, a lot of, like, the shots... That we're seeing, which I, I think we're supposed to assume are flashes in his own mind, are of that Polaroid and of his daughter. So I'm wondering if when he first has that image of his own death, he's also seeing his daughter's death, which gives him the the dread feeling that he needs to go outside and check. And then throughout the rest of the movie, like there are like every all of his own actions and uh, and things that he sees, like his wife with those two women, um, are leading him toward that that fate. Yeah, I think you're. I think you're spot on. I just I argue that that is not an imagery thing. I think it's just the feeling that this movie evokes in the audience is the exact feeling that Donald Sutherland's character has. Mm, okay, I like that. And we mirror how he feels throughout the movie because of his impending death. Got it. I think that's what's so poetic about the film. It's great. Is that it evokes the same dread in you, this real feeling that that truly exists. Like, the, the dread feeling is a, a very real, concrete thing. Mm-hmm. And to, to um, compare that with something that's paranormal or metaphysical is interesting because that's such a primal thing. And it's not something you have control over, like yeah. anxiety. Uh, that's just something that your body completely takes over with like you can't decide like oh this isn't gonna make you uncomfortable (laughs) like it just does it just does and he is this guy of sound mind who has no faith or belief in anything and he's filled with dread and every action he makes is because of that dread yeah the the interesting thing too is um his wife lets him know that they need to leave Venice because one of because the psychic sister told her that he had the sight and that something bad was going to happen to yeah him. he's in, or something bad was going to happen danger, they needed yeah. to leave venice and after she leaves to go care for the sun he is up on the scaffolding looking at some mosaic tiles and he almost falls off and he almost dies mm-hmm. an interesting moment in that which is kind of unrelated but i still want to talk about it he survives the event it's it's pretty interesting like he has to swing on a rope like um indiana jones style to get back <laughs> on the scaffolding and he's dangling for a good time but later on when he flashes back to the incident when he flashes back to it he falls off you're right i do remember that isn't that interesting that is very interesting i think he is it him or his or the the priest that was talking about their father dying from a fall one of the two of them i think they were talking together so i've just confused who said it but one of the two of them says their father died from a fall it might have been donald sutherland you're right i'd completely forgotten about that i don't know what that means i have no idea what that means but it's just really interesting because he sees in his mind's eye him letting go and falling off the scaffolding i want to come back to that in like a quick second because i think the editing in this movie deserves at least two minutes of discussion (laughs) but did you happen to read anything about that stunt 
Mm-mm. The stunt guy didn't want to do it because the insurance wasn't set up, which means if anything got ha- if anything went wrong and he got hurt, he wouldn't be covered. So Donald Sutherland reluctantly did it himself. They tied him up with some specific wire. He held onto the rope. He, you know, he just he had to swing until somebody was able to save him and bring him back onto the scaffolding. And he found out afterward that that is the absolute wrong rope to use. And from him twisting around on the the rope that he's holding, like when I, okay, I should probably define this the the wire. We'll say so the wire, the safety wire that he's using was the wrong wire. Uh, the rope that he's holding onto for dear life. If he had let go of that, that wire would have been frayed, and he would have fallen to his fucking death in real life. <laughs> Wow. Yeah, which is nuts. Could they not have just filmed it like a foot off the ground? Apparently not. (laughs) (laughs) Apparently not. There are some really good shots, actually, where they are like right in his face looking down and we're getting like a good sense of uh, of the height. And uh, yeah, because you see people running around underneath. Yeah, I'm, I'm wondering, I'm, I would imagine for that shot, they just had a swing stage beside him that they were able to do it. But it really looks like somebody is just on his shoulders. Like, the, the angle that they're getting with that is crazy. But yeah, the editing in this movie is wild. And I think the scene most people are going to point to, which I'm going to bring up right now, is that sex scene. I was like, the sexy scene? Right? <laughs> um, it's not even sexy, though. It's the the marriage scene. <laughs> yeah that is, that's literally what you should be calling it <laughs> i think it got put in if i remember reading correctly it got put in like last minute because there were too many scenes of them arguing and he wanted to show that they were still in love and married mm-hmm. but like what's great about it is during that whole scene we are cutting back and forth from them having sex to them getting ready afterward to go out for dinner which is really nuts uh, and like and it weird works really well, marital though. stuff, like brushing your teeth and buttoning your shirt. Yeah, like... apparently part part of it. I think they they had always planned to do it, but it it really worked in their favor because the censor board said like they gave them very strict rules on filming a sex scene. Like there's no quote unquote humping. We can't see a hip or thigh rise and return. <laughs> so, but what they they got around that was like, okay, so this hip and thigh rises and then we cut to him putting a shirt on and we cut back and they're doing something else. There is definitely humping going on, <laughs> but you are not seeing any writhing, so you can't censor this scene. Uh, but apparently Britain didn't like it. Hmm. They were like, there's kind of lingus in this and we're not fans of that. You get it out of our BBC. Like they just, they cut it out completely and people were furious about it. But it was like consensual. It was romantic. And it was in the, what do you call it? The sanctity of marriage. Yeah. But all throughout this movie, like there are so many weird cuts and just like uh, little images dropped in. And I think a lot of it is usually calling back to the past, but it's also just like alternate scenes where we're seeing stuff happen all over the place. We're getting either a sense of just being in somebody's mind or just like an overall, you know, I'm gonna stick with that. It's it's like we are getting just the images that pop into your mind while you're having a conversation. Yeah, right? it's almost, I chalked everything up to like memories. Like we're seeing mm. yeah. memories or and memories can lie. interpretations. Yeah, when John sees the scaffolding incident again incident again and he falls off it's like he's seeing his fear what you see from that is like what what he took away from that incident and mm. it's fear of fear of heights or fear of falling or fear of death or but he he took something negative away from that so yeah. he survived it yeah but that's not what he sees yeah, that's interesting that's and so that's nice. not what you would see if you came away from a near-death event like that you no. would be afraid and you would be more yeah. cautious the next time you had to go on fucking scaffolding <laughs> 
You would hope, at least. There is so much throughout this movie of him falling. That's some, that's that's also something else I saw that I don't necessarily buy into all that much. We've got his daughter who falls into the pond, his wife who falls into the table, him who's constantly working on statues or some sort of like mosaic tile at heights. Oh, falling. them putting up that new stone when um, the statue or whatever. When his wife first meets the the sisters for a second time. Yeah. When they're trying to put that gargoyle or whatever it is on the outside. It is such a tense and scary scene, but also you're 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 the same as as his character because he's sort of side eye seeing that his wife is going to bump into those girls, that, and, he's, and he, he knows doesn't want it to happen. Weird about them, yeah, yeah, and they're out of his eye line, so he's his attention is divided, and he's also doing something where his attention should not be divided. So right. you are just so uncomfortable in that scene because you like that is the scene where we are looking through a passenger window out through the opposite side of the street. Yeah, if this was any other movie that gargoyle or that statue would come crashing to the ground yeah and he'd be underneath it and it doesn't no but we still have all those feelings that you get if it would have fucking wild even the beginning of the movie when their daughter is playing around the pool and they're reading books or, or cataloging the photos uh we're, we're cutting to lunch and it was just eaten and like just like the, the mess of lunch like oh here's a carved up turkey and here's some empty plates and oh here's the daughter again she's about to die and oh look at that polaroid back to the turkey sandwich <laughs> like it's oh it is it's all over the place and I, I love it yeah it's so interesting because watching this movie especially for the first time like i did i didn't have any of these emotions or these these feelings watching it i, I kind of just wanted the movie to like wash over me also i had no idea what the film was leading up to yeah so i just got to experience the dread of it um and a little bit of boredom yeah it, it's weird like the movie loses you or at least it lost me yeah like i'm still paying attention to it i'm still very intrigued but at some point I was worried that there wasn't going to be anything at the end. Mm-hmm. And then it's just like, okay, I get it, imagery and stuff. But then once the film came together at the end, everything kind of fell into place. And it was yeah. just like, oh, my God, so much of this is like, it needs to be filtered through me to experience it. Like, yeah. you need to filter all of those memories as they come, not knowing what they are. And then when you see the end of the film you realize that they were memories or interpretations or like you, when you find out what is real and what isn't. Yeah. It's kind of nuts. And it's, it's, it's so bizarre that it's so fragmented because like this movie and, you know, film itself really is just like a bunch of fragmented images that go into you to filter out into one, one experience. Right. Mm -hmm. So, well, and that like, is, you are the prism of this movie. That is always film. Like we don't think about it. Yeah. That that's way what because, I mean. Yeah. Because film is, pretty much been opt optimized into like the perfect formula but there is so much cut out of a story that we connect the dots ourselves and we're so trained now with how stories are to do it we don't even notice anymore like mm -hmm. we don't notice um that we don't see characters eat or sleep or go to the bathroom or do mundane tasks we just see them meeting important people and doing important things and during these important moments of their lives and we fill in the blanks ourselves yep yep I've noticed that we haven't talked about the very, very, very end of the movie. Do you we, want to talk about the very, very end of the movie? I do. Uh, I, we have mentioned that he dies. He, uh, one night, he he goes chasing after uh, this cloaked figure that looks just like his daughter. As far as we know, it's the ghost of his daughter. So he goes chasing after her. Turns out to be a little person who is the killer who's roaming the streets of Venice and killing people at night. Uh, but more importantly than that, at his funeral, 
in, you know, instead of being in a hearse and uh, driving on the streets, we are in a gondola. We are in a boat. We are going through the canals. Uh, and his wife, Laura, and the two women uh, are on the front of that boat, just like the vision he saw half an hour ago. Mm-hmm. Oh, man. That fucking even to, moment. Even, too, though, his death is exactly like the film that he destroys. His blood is going down on, is dripping down on a chapel. Right? That's what I'm saying. Like, he, oh, god damn. The end of this movie is so nuts. It's so good. Like, so, like, such a good payoff for an hour and a half of just wondering what's going on. And being uncomfortable. Yeah, and not even realizing. (laughs) Why am I scared of this movie? (laughs) You don't even realize that they're giving you all these puzzle pieces. It's like at the end of it, all of a sudden, you see the full image. It's, it's so, ugh. It's masterful. It's insane. Did you see that his wife was smiling on that gondola ride? No. Because that's something that I read and went back and just uh, when I wanted to watch. Did you look at it? Was she actually smiling? She doesn't have like a big smile. She's not beaming, but she isn't sad. Um, like she definitely looks. It's probably because she's with those fucking crazy sisters who were probably talking to him. <laughs> well, I, yeah, there's that, I guess. But it, she almost looks proud. I, I, I don't really know how to, to to explain it. Like she is definitely not overjoyed, but sh- she has some solace knowing that her husband and her daughter are together again. Mm. Because if she really believes that her daughter's ghost is around. Uh, and that these people see it and can talk well, to it. Well, and his death after they've prophesized it sort of actually coming true proves that they are indeed correct. Yeah, like they know what they're talking about. So yeah, she like, knows that they're t- together again and will probably also follow her the rest of her days. Because his death proves that she is actually a psychic, the sister. Yeah. That's what it proves. Yep. If only he didn't ignore his talents and his abilities, he might also have been able to recognize it. Hmm. If he was not such a doubting Thomas, he might be around today. What a good movie. Oh, but I, movie. I stand by my statement at the big beginning. Like, I didn't think it was, this is normally not the type of movie I enjoy. I don't necessarily like slow movies mm-hmm. or I think I said it was not enjoyable and it was not entertaining, but like. But by, by a classical definition of enjoyable or entertaining. Yeah, like it's a different kind of movie to watch. Yeah, like, there are no high five moments, but there is just like. This epiphany moment at the end. Mm-hmm. That's unlike anything. Uh, so what you rate this film? Probably. Can you go first? Can I don't want to. <laughs> um, yeah, so it's it's very hard. Um, it, I'm trying to decide between either a 3 or a 3.5. And based on our discussion here, because it's weird, like this movie's almost better in retrospect. Yes! Yeah, like yeah. it's... Because uh, it's an experience. I'm gonna say I'm gonna I'm gonna say it like that. This movie is an experience, and for that, um, I think I gotta give this movie a 3.5. This movie I, was nuts. I'm also a 3.5. This movie's insane. This is like Shining level horror. Yes. Like it's it's not quite the same as The Shining, but what it pulls off and what it achieves, and just how it does it so unsuspectingly is is insane. I need to watch every Nicholas Rogue movie forever now. I want to watch, I need somebody who's seen the film a thousand times to watch it with me yeah. and talk the entire movie. I'm with you. I, I also need somebody who knows more about this movie than we do because uh, we, we've pulled a few things from Wikipedia and the rest of it is speculation. Yeah, I have no idea. Like, there's some things that are absolutely correct, like the images from the beginning mirroring the images from the end, but 
what we suspect to be memories and interpretations and stuff like that is all up to how you, the viewer, are filtering it. Yeah. There's, there's, there's also something in the Wikipedia. Like, why page. do they uncross their legs? I that I don't know. Like, I'm never gonna get an answer. I think for it's that. just to make you suspicious. I think that's what it might be. I don't. Oh, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> so if you need to be creeped out in a way that's not like cats jumping out of dark corners and is just like being uncomfortable for two hours in Venice, which is like a beautiful place. Yeah. If you think you like slow burns, you have to watch this if you've not seen it because I'm gonna say right now. I will not use the term slow burn anymore unless it is anything like this movie. This movie was a magic trick. I don't think that, yeah, I don't think this was a slow burn. Like, I think this was just, like... This movie was a a stick of dynamite that had an hour and a half wick on it. Or fuse. (laughs) Hour and a half Yeah, but, like, in the way that you describe dynamite, how it sucks in the air before it explodes the air. Oh, I love (laughs) it. Like, the backdraft of slow burn. Yes, this is the backdraft of horror. Yeah. Most movies are just not the, ex- the movie. The definition. Yeah, most movies are the explosion. This is that that pressure that you get when you open the door right before you know you're fucking dead. Man, have you seen Backdraft? I've asked you that a thousand times. No. Have you Have you not seen it? No. The The fire in that movie is the best villain, the best non horror movie villain. No, that goes to Tim Curry as the oil in Ferngully. Oh, okay. Have you seen Kurt Russell as a fireman before? Is he in Backdraft? Would you like to? See background? Would you like to see Kurt Russell as a fireman? Yes. <laughs> yes, I would. Yeah, I figured. He doesn't have an eye patch. He doesn't have a beard, but he's uh, he's Kurt he, Russell. I bet he's shiny. <laughs> <laughs> All right, moving on. Let's talk about 1980s The Changeling. That house is not fit to live in. No one's been able to live in it. It doesn't want people. She said she'd seen a boy. He, he was trying to come up through the floor, and he kept staring at her. What is it in that house, Claire? What is it doing? Why is it trying to reach me? Will you communicate with us? Will you speak to us? How did you die? How, How did you die? Directed by Peter Medic, The Changeling is currently sitting at a 7.3 out of 10 on IMDb, 80% on Rotten Tomatoes, 2.5 out of 4 from Roger Ebert, and a 3.6 out of 5 on Letterboxd. So this is the second time that we've watched this movie. Yep. I remembered really not liking it, and I know that this movie is pretty, um, pretty appreciated in the community. A lot of people have this on their like best paranormal horrors of all time list yeah uh it's up there in terms of haunted houses and ghost stories and i never really got it i didn't really understand i was just like i don't remember being that great i think maybe the problem for me because i felt the same way was that i always heard it used in the same breath as like poltergeist and i hold we hold poltergeist on a pretty high pedestal either way I think Poltergeist is is one of our favorite supernatural movies ever. Mm-hmm. Um, so I had really high expectations for this movie when we saw it. I think people just like George C. Scott, which is funny because I really don't like him. I'm not nuts about him in this movie. Yeah, <laughs> I I think I just uh I don't know if it has anything to do with performance. I 
I think he's, he's just, a great actor. I think he's just not for me, um, <laughs> especially in Firestarter. <laughs> oh man, Firestarter. <laughs> um, but like that aside, rewatching it, I definitely have a new appreciation for the movie, and I found more in it this time that I liked. Yeah, I'm glad we I'm glad we rewatched it. Yeah, and I. I had to say that I was like not excited to rewatch it. I was like, I don't Neither remember I. loving this movie. I mean, we we're going to have a real hard time talking about it. And what I was going to chalk it up to before rewatching was just that we have seen so much in terms of paranormal horror nowadays that follows that same kind of uncover the mystery of the ghost format. Yeah. When this film came out, that was relatively still like a refreshing take on yeah. ghost horror yeah especially capturing like a voice a ghost's voice on tape or something like that like having a seance where we now have proof of the ghost like that's not something that you were necessarily getting 20 years beforehand yeah now that's kind of standard fare yeah like, um we don't have ghosts in american cinema that don't come with a purpose or a message yeah they don't exist so it maybe <laughs> yeah the problem i always assumed you always assumed was that uh, modern movies had borrowed from this movie so much that they'd sucked the life out of it for us, having not seen it, and there just wasn't anything there. They drained it dry. And they done drained it dry. <laughs> um, but watching it and kind of knowing that this is 1980, yeah, you get to kind of watch those those films without knowing um, The Ring exists or The Others exists, right? Or um, what's another one? The Blair Witch Project, even. Oh, yeah. Okay, cool. I dig it. The Ring and the Others definitely owe a lot to this goddamn movie. Uh, but like Don't Look Now, the movie follows a uh, man who's... Who, well, unlike Don't Look Now, uh, George C. Scott's entire family is killed at the beginning of this movie in a horrible accident. In a horrible snow fight. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That shouldn't have made me laugh so much. Uh, but also, I mean, one dumb joke for another, like, he's he's stuck in that phone booth. The, the original glass case of emotions, right? <laughs> like, the truck is coming, he sees it, he can't get to them in time, and, ah! and catastrophe happens. Cut to, like, what, a year later, roughly? Yeah, and he's, like, packing up his apartment, and he's moving to Seattle? Let's just call it. Yeah, Seattle. You're right. It is Seattle. A hundred. This this entire movie is Vancouver. <laughs> there's there's a few exterior shots in Seattle. Uh, the rest of it is Vancouver and the University of Toronto. Oh, that is the whole fucking movie. Makes sense. Yeah, it really does. Especially with all them pine trees. In the I was beginning. thinking about that that one building that they go to, like the uh, historian office with that in the road building that's like really narrow on the end yeah I'm like is that that same building that they use for the hotel in the john wick movies oh like that one on front street in yeah Toronto? that's right across from the st lawrence market right yeah i don't i don't know because... i think it's that building i think every single movie ever uses that building <laughs> well you... it's such a weird road <laughs> there is a building like that in new york and there's a building like that in london i think oh. but uh you're right about john wick um but uh, from the rooftop of that building we can see the space needle in the background so I, I think they used that building specifically just to show hey we're in seattle guys don't forget i think that's one of the only shots that's probably in seattle outside of the universe like exterior so every of the city has that same stupid road that's like oh we're almost a building away <laughs> it's like they yeah like they started they started making the building from the back and then the road from the other end of the town and by the time they were both getting toward the, the middle 
Dude, the building is literally they designed they like were a, run into a wedge other. of cheese. Yeah, it's uh, rather than forking the road with some traffic lights, it's this fork of cheese building. <laughs> so George C. Scott, John, as his character is known, uh, I can't go any further without talking about how goddamn old he is. He does not look like he has a 30-year-old wife and an 11-year-old daughter. Yeah, that was just movies then, though. I guess. How old do you think George C. Scott was when they filmed this movie? Because I'm going to give you... Here's the thing. 54. Man, you're so fucking close. He's 53. He looks 70. No, he doesn't. Doesn't he? No. I know nothing about aging. I hope I look like that when I'm 70. Also, he's a composer. Like, I'm just saying that their wives have a median age of 32. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Maybe Um, his second wife. Maybe he's got a 40-year-old daughter somewhere. Maybe. We never hear about that. I mean, the math checks out. So he's he's trying to get off the grieving train. He needs to get on with his life. Oh, by the, when he goes to see his friends and he's like, well, you know, felt really sad for myself. Walked around a lot. Felt really sad all the time, actually. But, you know, I need to get on with my life. So uh, I'm going to rent a cabin. I'm going to get back to writing and everything's going to be OBKB. I don't know why that scene is so strange to me. It just because there are so many other scenes in this movie where his grief is real. You know, the beginning half of this movie, I don't know that I really f- believe his character. Yeah. I, the beginning really doesn't grip me. It didn't grip me originally, and it still kind of didn't. It wasn't until the um, the paranormal stuff started happening that I started actually empathizing with the character. I had a hard time buying the grief. I wonder if it feels a little flat, because it's supposed to be. I wonder if he's saying these things because he's supposed to be the strong silent type. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't talk about how I actually feel. I'm just giving you the rote responses of what a person in my position is supposed to say. Mm-hmm. And he's internalizing everything. Yeah, that actually makes a little more sense now. Fuck, mm-hmm. do I got to watch this movie a third time? Because, <laughs> like, the, the scenes later on in the movie where he's moved into the house, he's starting to experience some strange things. But, like, we cut to him, 6 a.m., his alarm clock's going off. He's already awake, in bed, crying. Yeah, so, skipping back, though, just to just to sure. synopsize it properly, he ends up uh, renting a house that's part of the historical society. Yeah. The historical society um, that his friend or acquaintance in Seattle sets him up with. Mm-hmm. So he is staying in a giant ass haunted house. We need a friend like that. We need a friend who's like, oh, what's that? You need an Airbnb? Yeah, I guess you could get this basement apartment for a weekend. Or how about this mansion? I don't know if money was a huge object. He's probably paying for it. Oh, I'm sure he's paying for it. But by the sounds of it, it's not that expensive. Okay, it's cheap for a mansion. Doesn't (laughs) doesn't necessarily mean cheap. Just means cheap for a mansion. But also not entirely out of character, maybe, because he's a composer. And he wants space to write, and he's got a huge piano, so mm-hmm. he needs to be loud. He's also going to bring over the entire string quartet to play with him at some point. When he wants to be alone, he wants to be a little yeah. bit isolated, so what better than like this old historical property that probably has a grounds around it? Yeah, and you know, goddamn, more, the more I think of it, the more it makes sense, because he probably has thrown out everything he owns, right? Like he took a few pieces with him, a few pieces of furniture, Including a that single ball, ball. <laughs> yeah, a, sing- a single ball, uh, and 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 other than that, it'd be like a mattress and a box of books. So yeah, yeah maybe an apartment would be the wrong choice. That's true. Yeah. So the house is great because it's already fully furnished. It's got two. It's got two groundskeepers that come in and dust every book for you, pick every weed, make sure your furnace isn't rattling in the morning. 
Although it's an old house, it'll do that. Yeah, that is the first explanation for anything. Like ghost hunter stories, uh, real life, this movie. (laughs) It's like, yep, it's furnace. Must be an airlock in it somewhere. Like, I don't know if you were hearing me correctly. It sounded like a cannon was going off every five seconds for an hour. A methodic cannon. (laughs) Yeah. I don't want to keep hurling complaints around. I hate the fucking sound effect for that banging. I didn't mind it. Oh, it bugs me the entire movie. The entire movie. Uh, Like the banging at the beginning. Okay, maybe it's not so bad initially, but like as the movie goes on, it gets louder and louder and louder. And by the end of it, when we are seeing somebody just like crashing their cane down uh, and, and, and mimicking that banging, almost like creep show. Maybe that's why it bugs me. Because of Father's Day and creep show. I don't know. I just hate the sound of that banging. Just bad Foley art from the 80s. I think it's supposed to be... It's supposed to reverberate a bit because it's it part of it is the banging sound, but most of the times you're hearing the banging, it's a memory of the banging, mm. and also the person who's remembering it was submerged in water at the time. Yeah. So yeah. it's skewed by lots of things, like hundreds of years. <laughs> so fuck you, I'm defending the ghost. <laughs> All right, fine, fine. Somebody needs to defend the ghost. <laughs> the initial haunting sequences are really good. And are very scary. Yeah. Surprisingly so. Like any of the stuff at the top of the stairs, spooky Mm. as fuck. The ball, spooky as fuck. The door even opening, like when he's playing the piano the first time and the door opens by itself, where the door is located. Yeah. When it first swings open, you're anticipating a person there. And it isn't until the door- And we know there's a gardener on the property. So there is somebody else there with him. Yeah. And it isn't until the door is fully swung open that you realize that- there's nothing there to have swung it. What's great about but that moment, it too? It lets you think there's somebody opening yeah. it for a really long time. And you can see in his face that he knows the door is opening. Like, he he recognizes that somebody's coming into the room, but then when he doesn't hear footsteps or anybody say hello, that's when he goes, wait a minute, something's wrong. And he goes to see if there's if there's anybody else on the property, and the, the gardener assures him, no, it's, it's just me today. Uh, so he immediately knows something's wrong. But this piece that he's working on that he's having trouble with, all of a sudden it just it just comes to him. He just, oh, this is perfect. It's like a beautiful lullaby. I'll record it. I'll transpose it. It's going to work into the, the second act of my symphony that I'm working on. Yeah. 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 All right. Second movement, right? Of my symphony. Of my symphony that I'm <laughs> working on. Later on when he's leaving, uh, somebody throws something out of out of a window. You know what? I don't even know if anybody throws anything. I think just the stained glass window just like blows open and mm. a piece of glass falls on him and he cancels his plans for the day and goes upstairs to find out what's going on with that with that window. Um, and he discovers that a room has been closed off to look like a closet uh, when in fact it is it is definitely just somebody's old bedroom that's covered in a hundred years of dust and decay. And I just have to say though, if this if this building is owned by the Preservation Society and blah, blah, blah. They would have blueprints, would they not, of the house? Oh, for sure. And and anyways... You don't like, even... Even the Preservation Society doesn't need the blueprints. You can go to Town Hall and get the blueprints. But also, too, they should... That room has a window. So it would be very easy to walk around that room and be like... Walk around that house and be like, Hmm, I think we're, we're missing a space on the third floor. It has a full window. I guess that's true. Uh, maybe I just assume... How big is that? I guess the house is ginormous. Like, what's a room here or there? I don't even... Yeah. I, honestly, I don't even know how big the place has to be for me not to explore some of it. Like, I, 
Especially if I'm him. It's just me. It's like, here's the kitchen. I don't think here's it's up to him room. to have explored it, but I definitely don't think there should be a closet walled off in a house that's owned by a preservation society. I will. Here's the thing, Kim. Unless you're the Winchester house, then you can excuse it. Yeah, like that's it's, it's default setting for the Winchester house. <laughs> um, this house was never meant to be rented. Nobody was supposed to rent this house. Do, do, does the preservation society own it or do they just manage it? I don't know the rules. I get the impression that it's still owned by... I think it's owned by the city. The senator. The senator. Oh, sorry. We're both we're saying... Like, <laughs> yes. You said it like you knew what I was I saying. pointed. My eyes, my eyebrows <laughs> lifted. I was like, that's right. We're on the same page. No, we're not. <laughs> no. No, we're not. <laughs> From upstairs in that hidden room, uh, we see a hundred years of cobwebs, a, a little tub... A tiny wheelchair. A tiny wheelchair and a music box that's playing the lullaby that he just transposed himself. What the fuck? Ghosts. Ghost music. Yeah. <laughs> we we're all, getting better. We're almost. <laughs> we're it's like that moment, like, oh, never mind. <laughs> I was going to say, have you ever been so bored when you're at a red light and you can hear yours clicking? It's like... When you, you, your turning signal, sorry. What does this have to do with the ghost? Follow me here. Follow, it's your turning signal. It's like. And then you write a song. No, no, not you don't write a. There to be a ghost. You don't write it? a song in your head. You're just looking at the car ahead of you, and theirs is just a little offset. It's like. And together you're the blue man group. No. Oh, do you never have that where like you can hear your turn signal going and it's not in sync with the guy ahead of you and then all of a sudden it is in sync for like two clicks and oh my god, we're out of sync again. But what does that have to do with the ghosts? That was you and me. We were at it. Oh. We slowly getting back in I the sync. I didn't even know what you were comparing see, to. See, we're back out of sync. Oh god. That's the problem. No, no. <laughs> Let's talk about the motherfucking seance. Right. Centerpiece of every good gothic ghost story. I feel like the whole point of this entire segment was getting to this moment. Yep. Because the seance is hands down the finest bit of work in this entire movie. Oh, it's so good. So he shows the tape to his realtor friend. He insists that a ghost is trying to get in contact with him. So they need to get a medium in the house. And she, uh, she's crazy. Great casting on her. Her yeah. voice is so fucking spooky. Mm-hmm. Um, so she, her big thing is that she's a um, an automatic writer, which is this. Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, this is actually like a a method that is used by mediums who kind of have like uh, some sort of ability. Yeah, um, but this is an actual categorization of a type of spiritualism where. People claim that spirits take over their hands and do, like, writing. It's a great waste of paper is what it is. Well, other... I was going to say, this scene totally is mirrored by um, that scene in Insidious when it that completely obnoxious gas mask. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, that's true. It's also... Automatic writing was also used in Rose Red, I think, that Stephen King miniseries. Isn't it also in the others as well? Because doesn't she rip the pages out of the, the old lady's hand at the end of the movie? And like we're seeing, think so. we're seeing pieces of paper just flying in the air. Yeah. Um, but that's just such a cool, old-timey way mm-hmm. of spiritualism it's kind of the same way that they had those mediums with like the ectoplasm coming out of their mouths oh man um, don't you like don't you fucking wish you could go back in time and see one of these seances 
totally so bad oh 1000 so bad 1000 percent. but i would do two things with the time machine i would go see the clash live in concert and i would go to a seance in the late 1800s <laughs> she better manifest something yeah uh <laughs> so i just think it's perfect for this setting because we are in this gothic turn of the century mansion he's he plays classical music and then we have this mm. medium who's using this old timey method uh, we also have like the tape and stuff, which I'm sure was pretty like for posterity's uh, sake. Hip on the times, but the automatic writing with with her writing out what the ghost is saying is mm-hmm. so fucking. Cool. It looks awesome, yeah. And it's her like the voice is so creepy. Her eyes are just dead. Well, not dead, but like she is. She's trying to give herself over to the spirit, right? Like again, you guys have seen this scene a thousand times. This is so fucking good. So spooky. It's the greatest part of the entire movie. And then later we get to kind of revisit those moments when John is listening to the tape of the event. Mm-hmm. But you have this added layer that the tape has captured something that they couldn't hear when they were in the room, which is kind of standard fare for nowadays. We get that a lot, and especially in those docu-series ghost shows. Oh, right, shows. yeah. But in, in all of them, it's just like added white noise. We got to take away a layer. We got to enhance. And then we're going to we bring up the high it, levels and put some and noise we're, reduction. We're going to put captions so you, that your, your <laughs> brain can hear what you're reading. This ghost is articulate as fuck. This ghost like is enunciating. A little boy. Yeah. Hell. Water. Daddy. Killed me. Yeah. Water. Oh, man. We did a good job. We, were we did good all right. That was actually pretty close, yeah. Father. Oh, that's what he says. Father, not daddy. Father in the well. Oh, I forgot about in the well. Father. Okay, so he calls his realtor friend back. I wish I wrote her name down. I'm really sorry about it, guys. I know she's like the other actress in this movie, <laughs> but uh, he, he brings her over. He's got to show her this tape. He's not in the room while she's listening to it. He's, Father. In the well. Wheelchair. <laughs> Wheelchair. She's in the other room listening to this tape. She comes in. She's horrified. She knows there's there's no way he could have faked this. She was there. She saw it go down. This is clear and actual evidence that there is a ghost. And then the scariest fucking scene of this entire goddamn movie happens. She is talking to him and something gets her attention and she just goes pale her eyes bug out her mouth drops and it's just this sheer look of horror and george c scott for some reason doesn't really react to it what he's like what you see something what's Uh, going on up there and he's like trying to prove to somebody that this house is haunted yeah and and they react to something in horror off off camera and he's just like cutting a baguette or something (laughs) you want some of this speak up you want me to butter it or like And the okay, so he comes in to see what's oh, what the fuss is all about, and the wheelchair is at the top of the stairs, and just the fucking lighting on that goddamn so thing. fucking dark it and might, shadowy. Yeah, it might as well have been the Grim Reaper. It was there could oh. have been something in the wheelchair, but you wouldn't know. Yeah, yeah. Oh, you want to talk about minds filling in movies? There's a ghost sitting in that chair. There, well, how did it wheel over? It wheeled down some stairs too. Like, isn't there a Didn't staircase? It chase her? <laughs> That's what what we needed more of. Wheelchair chases. Yeah, wheelchair chases. High speed wheelchair chases. (laughs) Although there kind of is that one where the ghost, we're the ghost camera and we're like swooping through the house. Oh, yeah. I'm just saying. That is such a cool shot where we we come down and we we basically ride down. This isn't the seance, isn't it? This is the ghost arriving to the seance. 
Yeah, because yeah, like we swoop down the banister and then we go across like the chandelier, just proving that this like real people don't take that way. <laughs> <laughs> you just cut across the corner lot, you <laughs> son of a bitch. There's gonna be a walking path on that man's lawn. But yeah, isn't there a set of stairs that's leading up to that room? I think it's on the third floor. Yeah, 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 yeah. So that wheelchair got down silently. We didn't even talk about the ball rolling down the stairs. Because I think that's later on, isn't it? No, that's the first thing that happens. The ball rolling down the stairs and Is then it? he drops it in the water and then it rolls down the stairs again and it's fucking wet. Oh, man. You're like, what the logic yeah. is this? No logic, ghosts. And from this moment on, George C. Scott is no longer grieving. Uh, yeah, no, like, forget your family. Yeah. We are in solve the mystery mode. I think there's one moment where he goes to the gravesite, right? He's just like, oh, no. He, go he goes to the gravesite of the previous owners. And he has he has a quick moment where he's like, what is the, is the ghost trying to talk to me because I've lost my family? Mm. And that, that's about it. Like, we have a moment where he looks off into the distance. Yeah, I think the only, the only point of making him a grieving father is one, it gets him... It excuses why he's alone and in mm -hmm. this crazy ass building, but also it allows us to believably follow him t when he immediately believes that he's being haunted. There's no period where he doesn't think he's haunted. Yeah. Like he experiences an apparition and then it's like, okay, this house is haunted and I'm going to get to the bottom. Yeah. How do I prove it to other people? Because I already know. And a, for a grieving man, that kind of makes sense because if you prove to yourself that this house is haunted, then you can prove that your family isn't really capital G gone. Yeah. yeah there, there's life after death in some capacity and whether or not they're they're haunting somebody in Connecticut or they're just waiting for him at the end of the finish line, he may potentially see them again. Mm -hmm. So from this moment on, John is in like full investigation mode. Uh, they're, they're going to the library, they're searching at microfiche, they're learning about the previous family that owned the house before it was abandoned and made available for him to rent. Uh, he, he finds out about some of the untimely deaths of the children, uh, and he also finds out about this really mysterious situation happening between Dad and the youngest son. Dad had married into the family, so he wasn't necessarily the one with the money, and everything was left to the son, uh, but he had to take care of the kid. If if the kid died before he was 18 and able to claim the money, then the money was donated back to the city because uh, the, the kid's grandfather knew that this guy was a little shady uh, and was trying to protect the kid from being murdered, essentially. But there's a really strange period around World War II where they leave and go to another country, and then they come back when he's a much older man. And the kid who was paraplegic comes back and he's mysteriously no longer yeah. in his wheelchair. He's healed. And we discover at this point that that is that senator uh, who's been central to a few other scenes. Uh, we haven't really talked about him too much, but uh, he shows up at a charity benefit for the uh, the local Seattle Philharmonic Orchestra. Uh, and he's a pivotal... Member of society. Yeah, he's a pillar <laughs> of the community. Yeah. Uh, his investigation leads him to another property owned by the family... Um, because he feels like he needs to look for a well, uh, and he knows that he knows that there isn't one on his property, uh, but surely to God, there's one over here in the floorboards of this house. Um, which brings us to another horrifying moment of this movie, yes. which we don't even get to see. Fucking terrifying, though. Right? When the mom says that the daughter in her room at night is visited by this boy who who's says climbing up out of the floorboards. Just heard the telling that story, though, is better than if they had filmed it. Just your yeah. imagination picturing, like, being a little kid and seeing a ghost coming out of your floor, like, 
that is a fucking nightmare. Oh, that's crazy. So that's they, terrifying. She, so she gives them permission to cut open the floor and start digging to look for a well, a la the ring. Surprise. Yeah, and they find it. Way down at the bottom of that well, come across some bones. And a medallion. Yeah, I love that scene when the medallion comes up out of the ground. And this is this is like fucking spooky magooky. <laughs> oh yeah, 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 hundred percent spooky magooky. The, uh, <laughs> the, the the police have already come. They've called them. They've collected them bones, uh, them dry bones. And uh, <laughs> thanks for specifying. John is back at the bottom of the well, and just looking around. I feel like this movie needs a theme song. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, the times they are a changeling. Um, <laughs> Down at the bottom of the well. <laughs> dry bones. Dry bones. It's a... Um, Country western blues thing. Yep. melody. Folk standard. With a banjo. <laughs> uh, but down in the well, John finds a medallion that just like creepily pokes its own way up out of the soil and places itself there for him to find. It is a baptism medallion, because that's something they used to do, uh, signifying who you are, when you were baptized, yada yada. And apparently that's just something people always wear. Yeah, you just keep it forever? Like, yeah, I don't know. Uh, mm. It's like your uh, med alert bracelet for Jesus. Yeah, right? Like if you get to heaven and you're not wearing that, they don't know what blood type you are and you're not allowed in. <laughs> Sorry, we just don't have a bed for you. Yeah. <laughs> St. Peter's a prickly one. Um, <laughs> prickly pear. <laughs> prickly Peter. <laughs> oh, this is the most mildly insulting thing we've said on this podcast. <laughs> and at this point, he has proof. He actually goes to find the senator. He, he, he runs him down on the tarmac at an airport. They think he's like a terrorist. <laughs> and then they just put I want to blackmail you. <laughs> I have family secrets. <laughs> I live in your house. <laughs> oh my God, you're killing me. <laughs> so they just, you know, even with all that danger, they just put him in a car and shove him up. Like, get out of here, you <laughs> silly bastard. <laughs> I live in your house. <laughs> the ending of this movie is kind of crazy because it turns out everything is is true. Uh, the senator is the changeling. He is this orphan boy that the father adopted mm-hmm. um, after he had killed his paraplegic son. And, yeah, did we say that? <laughs> and we were working to it and went away for that strange period and came back with a boy. He, The boy he came back with was the senator who is adopted. Mm-hmm. And the big finale of the movie is the senator coming to terms with it. Yeah, um, which is a really interesting choice. Because the senator, when this, like, the senator is not the dad. No. He wasn't the one that did the killing. Not at all. And he was just this orphan boy who ended up this affluent man by the sins of the father. Do you think, though, because there's definitely a tone that he, there's some suspicion because he is getting phone calls from one of the ladies at the Preservation Society. And it's like, oh, they're getting a little too close. Like, they're digging around. Like, everybody knows that there's a family secret, but nobody wants to look at it. I get the, I, I get the impression yeah, that I... he's only just learning that he was adopted 
and his identity has been changed. But I also get the impression that he had an inkling that there was something going on and he just chose not to look at it. I, that's probably right. But when he, when he's confronted in his office, he has a, he's a portrait of his father on his desk. Mm -hmm. And when he says like, my father was a good man, he believes it. He's saying it like he completely believes it. He's not trying to protect some public image. Yeah, and it didn't it didn't feel like in that scene that he knew and he was trying to protect his money or his wealth or his status. Like mm-hmm. he was trying to protect his father, his mm-hmm. family. Yeah. And it it I don't know. When he at the end, this character comes comes to terms with what he is, the changeling, and d- dies. And we're supposed to feel like like the mystery's been solved and the and, and the, a debt has been paid. Yeah, but it's just like if he didn't know, then he doesn't deserve this. Yeah. Like really what should happen is okay, so maybe what it is is he he either has to admit that publicly or die with that secret. I think that's what it is. Cuz if he says publicly this is what my father did, I am not the person. As it turns out, I've just been made aware I'm not the person I think I am. And everything that I've worked for my entire life and my father's life, I guess, is is for naught. But why would you do that, though? Because, like, I, I get that this is kind of crummy and kind of, like, ugh, continuing the lie. But, like, he... <laughs> this is so terrible. He got to where he was on the grounds of, like, on his own two legs. Like, maybe it was because he was part of this this family that had wealth and status but like the fact is is he's there anyways and it, it's, it appears he's doing a good job so like disrupting the status quo would just be disrupting the status quo for a ghost in this crusty old house exactly that's that's the really odd part it's like what does the ghost really want like if 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 it's that uh by uh this older man dying and keeping that secret then the two of them are together at this point and it's as though like if you're dead um, I get to be who I am? Yeah, like, because as far as anybody's concerned, you die. Oh, okay, so this is actually even darker than it is. If you die, it's my name that they remember. And, in the, you know, once we're both even and dead, that's my life. You died without a name and you were no one. That's kind of cruel. I don't know, though, because then now this we've got like, another ghost yeah. who's haunting the ashes of that building who's like, I need to know who my father and <laughs> What's my, my mother name? was. Yeah. <laughs> yeah because like if that's the case then that ghost is actually pretty evil like he was wrong yeah but right what he's doing is wrong because like this was an innocent boy who didn't know his origins exactly and now is dying like with no family yeah like all of the all of the motivations of that ghost are based on this person having guilt like this person is the guilty party his father's dead. Like it, this, this. I, I think this would only really. Why make didn't sense. he haunt people in the house a hundred years ago? Like, I don't think anybody's been in the house. Mm-hmm. Or you know what? The gardener's been there. He could have haunted the gardener. Did he plant any? Maybe he's tried. <laughs> <laughs> and the gardener's just like, ah, old houses make noises. Doors open. <laughs> That's great. Oh, you know, the wheelchair's out of the closet again. They're like, maybe. It back <laughs> These old houses, you know. Uh, maybe though. They moved back to the house after World War Two, and the ghost was around. And Dad was like, yep, fuck that noise. We're getting out of here. And just went and got another house. I find it odd that he didn't... That bo- makes sense why the walls boarded up. Yeah. Because he still had this... He had a son. Like, could he not just like, this is your room now, boy. I'll just take this wheelchair out. 
Yeah. Like, it's not like there was skeletons in that room. He didn't have to board that room up. Yeah, because it's not like he pretended he never had a son. That's way more guilty than just, like, letting people use that room for its purpose. Like, if you really wanted to get away with it, why keep all the evidence? Yeah, wasn't the tub still in there? Yeah, the, the tub, tub was there. The tub drowned and, him in? Yeah, like, like, sure, all that stuff is perfectly normal to keep. It's a possession. Maybe you don't personally want to look at it. You could put it in the garbage, no big deal. But simply boarding that room up in, is an act of of guilt like the 100 percent. yeah like that, that is cast that in suspicion wheelchair should have gone to the curb a long time ago yeah i don't know if if um state houses have curb collection they must have there was a guy living there you mean to tell me that the oldest oh i see what you're saying because nobody goes there yeah it, yeah okay i thought you were trying to say like do do big houses have garbage collections like no the most rich people in the world have to go to the dump with their own <laughs> garbage <laughs> Oh, yeah, so this is the Lamborghini, and this is the tow truck from which we put our perishables. <laughs> oh, man. Okay, so what is... I think we've touched... We've. Yeah. I don't know if the ending completely makes sense. I think we agree on that. I think we've... It looks good, like the, the old guy walking into the fire and stuff. Like, it looks all Yeah, right. but I'm just frustrated at that point because oh, I yeah. feel bad for this old man. So I don't do I. feel like he's guilty or he has a debt to pay. Yeah. But, you know, the ghost wants what it wants. He's got to pay for it. They both have to pay for the sins. They both have to pay for the sins of their father? I don't know. Seems like a vindictive ghost. A little Like bit. an eye for an eye ghost. Yeah. And an eye for an eye leaves the whole world blind. Yeah, ghost. Yeah. Jeez. So, ratings on the changeling. Yeah. Um, I'm going to give it a three out of four. Really? Mm-hmm. That's surprising. Um, I, the fucking seance scene is so fucking good. And I think the the scares are actually really original and really cool. And it's got a really great atmosphere for a spooky haunted house thingy. Um, I am going to read up more on the original story. That's a cool idea. Yeah. I'm totally with you on all those scares and that uh, that seance scene. I think super great. Super effective. Yeah, I think the mystery is the weakest part of the story. It's my biggest problem with it. Yeah. And uh, because of that, I, I'm sitting at a 2.5 out of 4. I think, though, like, I'm chalking up the fact that I don't love or enjoy the mystery is because I'm watching it with today's eyes. Okay. That would have been so... I think so the scares are the, the hardest thing to watch with today's eyes, though. Mm, I still like the scares, though. No, but I, I think I they're do great. Like really I do really like them. Paranormal stuff, but the mystery format is so used. It's so dried up by now. Yeah. That this film doesn't necessarily perfect it in a way that wholly feels resolved at the end, or co- at least correctly resolved by my yeah standards. I'm with you. Um, so like that's where I'm like, eh, I mm-hmm. don't want to go on this mystery journey. I just want to see ghosts do things. Yeah. And fuck those ghosts did some sweet things. They do some nuts shit. Oh, loved it. Super scary. Super <laughs> effective. But that's just what we thought of the movie. Let us know what you thought of The Changeling and Don't Look Now over on Twitter at NOFS Podcast in the official NOFS subreddit at reddit.com slash r slash nightmare on film street or over on Facebook in the Horror Movie Fiend Club, which you can join at facebook.com slash groups slash horror fiends of NOFS. We are controlling transmission. This week's episode of Nightmare on Film Street is brought to you by Baphomet & Co. Small batch soap inspired by horror and the macabre.
This week's pick is the Black Magic Bar. A curse upon dirt and dullness, the Black Magic Soap Bar is a potent elixir for your skin. Crafted to clear complexions, combat oils and impurities, all while leaving the skin whisper soft and birthed anew. An essential part of your daily ritual, a little black magic for your bath. Get 10% off your order with the code NIGHTMARE at bathmittenco.com. That's 10% off with the code NIGHTMARE at checkout. Bathmitten Co. Made by hands, sometimes severed. Want to reach the cool creeps? Advertise with Nightmare on Film Street to get your brand out of the shadows. For more information, head to nofspodcast.com slash advertise. We are going to continue this conversation a little bit with a Patreon-exclusive episode of a game I've put together. Um, it is called Based on a True Story. The Changeling is inspired by the real accounts of a composer who helped write the screenplay for the movie. So I have made a game surrounding that uh, with a whole bunch of horror movies and whether or not they were inspired by a true story. But you can get that episode and all of our other bonus episodes as well as some other exclusive swag and perks at patreon.com slash nightmare on film street in exchange for supporting the show. If you have a quick second, please leave us a five-star rating and review wherever you're grabbing this podcast. If you are grabbing it on a platform that doesn't have ratings or reviews, you can also leave us one on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash Nightmare on Film Street. Uh, it really helps us get this show in front of more eyes, more listeners, and helps us to create more creepy content. And you may have your review read on the future episode of the podcast, like this one from Kendra182L. Just listened to the first episode and fell in love. This is officially my number two favorite podcast. Woo, number two. Can't wait to listen to the others. We'll be binging at work for the rest of the week. Keep up the excellent work. Five stars. That's real great. Number two when she just started listening to it. Right? I gotta like, say. We just like fucking rocket to the top. I don't even know. Almost the top. Almost the top. <laughs> you gotta aim 101%. 98%. 98%. We have done it. Thank you again, Kendra182L. That's awesome. Thank you guys, too, if you have left a review. Make sure it's stupid. Make sure it's funny, and you'll probably have a good shot. Oh, of guaranteed. I will read every <laughs> stupid review that comes our way. We'll be back at you again in two Thursdays from now with another horror-filled episode. I'm Kim. I'm John. Stay, Stay creepy. It appears you made it out alive. Just long enough to tell the tale of the nightmare on Film Street. Now, Help us grow the horde. Leave a review on iTunes or wherever you subscribe. Continue this week's conversation on Twitter by following at NOFS Podcast. And as always... More terror can be found lurking on our website, www.nightmareonfilmstreetpodcast.com. Until next week, stay creepy, fiends. <laughs>